Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 2 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Berengaria of Navarre, Part 2. Better fortune attended the vessel that bore the fair freight of the three royal ladies. Stephen de Turnham's galley arrived, without accident, at Naples, where Berengaria, Joanna, and the Cypriot princess, landed safely, and, under the care of Sir Stephen, journeyed to Rome. The Provençal traditions declare that here Berengaria first took the alarm, that some disaster had happened to her lord, from seeing a belt of jewels offered for sale, which she knew had been on his person when she parted from him. At Rome she likewise heard some vague reports of his shipwreck, and of the enmity of the Emperor Henry the Sixth. Berengaria was detained at Rome with her royal companions by her fear of the emperor for upwards of half a year. At length, the Pope, moved by her distress and earnest entreaties, sent them, under the care of Messer Malar, one of the cardinals, to Pisa, where they proceeded to Genoa, where they took shipping to Marseille. At Marseille, Berengaria was met by her friend and kinsman, the King of Aragon, who showed the royal ladies every mark of reverence, gave them safe conduct through his Provençal domains, and sent them on, under the escort of the Count de Sancto Egidio. This Egidio is doubtless the gallant Raymond Count St. Giles, who, traveling from Rome with a strong escort, offered his protection to the distressed queens, and though his father, the Count of Toulouse, had, during Richard's crusade, invaded Guienne, and drawn on himself a severe chastisement from Berengaria's faithful brother, Sancho the Strong. Yet the young count so well acquitted himself of this charge, that he won the affections of the fair widow, Queen Joanna, on the journey. The attachment of these lovers healed the enmity which had long subsisted between the house of Aquitaine and that of the counts of Toulouse, on account of the superior claims of Queen Eleonora, on that great fife. When Eleonora found the love that subsisted between her youngest child and the heir of Toulouse, she conciliated his father by giving up her rights to her daughter, and Berengaria had the satisfaction of seeing her two friends united after she arrived at Poitou. Now Queen Berengaria is left safely in her own domains. It is time to return to her unfortunate lord, who seems to have been destined, by the malice of Leopold, to a lifelong incarceration. The royal prisoner almost despaired of liberty when he wrote that pathetic passage in his well-known Provençal Tenson, saying, 
Now know I for a certainty that there exists for me, neither friend nor parent, nor for the lack of gold and silver, I should not so long remain a prisoner. He scarcely did justice to his affectionate mother, who, directly she learned his captivity, never ceased exerting herself for his release. Without giving any credence to the ballad story of King Richard and the Lion's Heart, which solely seems to have arisen from a metaphorical epithet of the troubadour payrolls, and is not even alluded to by the most imaginative of contemporary chroniclers, it really appears that Richard was ill-treated during his German captivity. Matthew Paris declares he was thrown into a dungeon, from whence no other man ever escaped with life, and was loaded with irons. Yet his countenance was ever serene, and his conversation pleasant and facetious, with the crowds of armed guards by whom he was surrounded day and night. It was a long time before Richard's friends could with any certainty make out his locality. He was utterly lost for some months. Blondel, a troubadour knight and poet, who had been shipwrecked with him on the coast of Istria, and who had sought him through the cities of southern Germany, sang, beneath the tower Tenenbruce in which he was confined, a tense in which Richard and he had composed. Scarcely had he finished the first stanza, when Richard replied with the second. Blondel directly went to Queen Eleonora, and gave her tidings of the existence of her son, and she took measures for his release. Her letters to the Pope are written with a passionate eloquence, highly illustrative of the tradition of the South, which names her among the poets of her country. O oh, mother of pity, she says, look upon a mother of so many afflictions, or if thy holy son, the fountain of mercy, afflicts my son for my transgressions, O oh, let me, who am the cause, endure alone the punishment. Two sons alone remain for my succor, who but indeed survive for my misery. For King Richard exists in fetters, while Prince John, brother to the captive, depopulates with the sword, and wastes with fire. The Lord is against me, his wrath fights against me, therefore do my children fight against each other. The Queen Mother here alludes to the strife raised by Prince John. He had obtained his brother's leave to abide in England, on condition that he submitted to the government established there. Queen Eleonora had intended to fix her residence at Rowan, as a central situation, between her own dominions and those of King Richard. But the confused state of affairs in England summoned her thither, February 11th, 1192. She found John in open rebellion, for, stimulated by messages from Philip Augustus, offering him all Richard's continental provinces, and the hand of Alice, rejected by Richard, he aimed at nothing less than the English crown. The arrival of his mother curbed his turbulence. She told him to touch his brother's rights under peril of her curse. She forbade his disgraceful intention of allying himself with Alice and to render such mischievous project impossible, she left that princess in close confinement at Rowan, instead of delivering her to Philip Augustus, as King Richard had agreed. So little truth is there in the common assertion, that the worthless character of John might be attributed to the encouragement his vices received from his mother. But it was the doting affection of Henry the Second for his youngest son, that had this effect, as he was the child of his old age, and constantly near him, while the queen was kept in confinement, at a distance from her family. 
when queen eleanora and the chief justiciary heard of the detention of king richard they sent two abbots to confer with him in germany they met him with his guards on the road to worms where a diet of the empire was soon to be held and were received by him with his usual spirit and animation he inquired into the state of his friends his subjects and his dominions and particularly after the health of the king of scotland on whose honor he said he entirely relied and certainly he was not deceived in his judgment of the character of that hero on hearing of the base conduct of his brother john he was shocked and looked grave but presently recovering his cheerfulness he said with a smile my brother john was never made for conquering kingdoms richard defended himself before the diet with eloquence and pathos that drew tears from most of his hearers and the mediation of the princes of the empire induced the emperor to accept as ransom one hundred thousand marks of silver meantime the ransom was collected in england normandy and aquitaine to which queen eleanora largely contributed when the first installment was ready this affectionate mother and the chief justiciary set out for germany a little before christmas queen eleanora was accompanied by her granddaughter eleanora surnamed the pearl of brittany this young princess was promised by the ransom treaty in marriage to the heir of leopold of austria the cypriot princess was likewise taken from the keeping of queen berengaria on the demand of the emperor and surrendered to her german relatives it was owing to the exertions of the gallant Guelphic princes his relations that the actual liberation of Coeur de Lyon was at last effected. Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony, and his sons appeared before the Diet, and pleaded the cause of the English hero with the most passionate eloquence. They pledged their credit for the payment of the remainder of his ransom, and actually left William of Winchester, the youngest Guelphic prince, in pawn with the emperor for the rest of the ransom. After an absence of four years, three months, and nine days, king richard landed at sandwich in april the sunday after st george's day in company with his royal mother who had the pleasure of surrendering to him his dominions both insular and continental without any diminution eleanora's detention of the princess alice in normandy had drawn on that country a fierce invasion from philip augustus the result of which would have been doubtful if the tears of berengaria then newly arrived in aquitaine had not prevailed on her noble brother sancho the strong to traverse france with two hundred choice knights by the valor of this hero and his chivalric reinforcement normandy was delivered from the king of france berengaria during the imprisonment of her royal husband lost her father sancho the wise king of navarre who died in eleven ninety four after a glorious reign of forty-four years after a second coronation richard went in progress throughout england with his royal mother to sit in judgment on those castellans who had betrayed their fortresses to his brother john at all these councils queen eleanora assisted him being treated by her son with the utmost reverence and sitting in state at his right hand the magnanimous Cour de Lyon treated these rebels with great lenity and when prince john on the arrival of the king at rouen being introduced by queen eleanora knelt at his brother's feet for pardon he raised him with this remarkable expression 
I forgive you, John, and I wish I could as easily forget your offense as you will my pardon. King Richard finished his progress by residing some months in his Agavin territories. Although he was in the vicinity of the loving and faithful Berengaria, he did not return to her society. The reason of this estrangement was that the king had renewed his connection with a number of profligate and worthless associates, the companions of his long bachelorhood in his father's lifetime. His conduct at this time infinitely scandalized all his subjects, as he abandoned himself to drinking in great infamy, for which various virtuous churchmen reproved him boldly, to their credit be it spoken. The spring of 1195, Richard was hunting in one of his Norman forests, when he was met by a hermit, who recognized him, and preached him a very eloquent sermon on his irregular life, finishing by prophesying, that unless he repented, his end and punishment were close at hand. The king answered slightingly, and went his way, but the Easter following he was seized by a most severe illness, which threatened to be fatal, when he remembered the saying of the hermit prophet, and, greatly alarmed, he began to repent of his sins. Richard sent for the monks within ten miles round, and made public confession of his iniquities, vowing withal, that if Queen Berengaria would forgive him, he would send for her, and never forsake her again. When he recovered, these good resolutions were strengthened by an interview he had with an English bishop. When Richard first parted from the queen, he quarreled with the virtuous St. Hugh, Bishop of Lincoln, on the ground of exacting a simoniacal tribute on the installation of the prelate into his see. Willing to evade the direct charge of selling the see, King Richard intimated that the present of a fur mantle, worth a thousand marks, might be the composition. St. Hugh said he was no judge of such gouds, and therefore sent the king a thousand marks, declaring, if he would devour the revenue devoted to the poor, he must have his willful way. Richard pocketed the money, but some time after sent for the fur mantle. St. Hugh set out for Normandy, to remonstrate with the king on his double extortion. His friends anticipated that he would be killed, but St. Hugh said, I fear him not, and boldly entered the chapel where Richard was at mass, when the following scene took place. Give me the embrace of peace, my son, said St. Hugh. That you have not deserved, replied the king. Indeed I have, said St. Hugh, for I have made a long journey on purpose to see my son. So saying, he took hold of the king's sleeve, and drew him on one side. Richard smiled and embraced the old man. They withdrew to the recess behind the altar, and sat down. In what state is your conscience, asked the bishop, very easy, answered the king. How can that be, my son, said the bishop, when you live apart from your virtuous queen, and are faithless to her, when you devour the provision of the poor, and load your people with heavy exactions? Are these light transgressions, my son? The king owned his faults, and promised amendment, and when he related this conversation to his courtiers, he added, were all our prelates like Hugh of Lincoln, both king and barons must submit to their righteous rebukes. Whether the interview with St. Hugh took place before or after the king's alarming illness, we have no data to declare. But as Richard was evidently in a tamer state, when St. Hugh visited him, than when he lawlessly demanded the fur mantle, we think the good bishop must have arrived opportunely. 
just as Richard was beginning to forget his sickbed vows, without quite relapsing into his original recklessness. The final restoration of Berengaria to the affections of her royal husband took place a few months after, when Richard proceeded to Poikature's, where he was reconciled to his queen, and kept Christmas, and the new year of 1196, in that city, with princely state and hospitality. It was a year of great scarcity and famine, and the beneficent queen exerted her restored influence over the heart of the king, by persuading him to give all his superfluous money in bountiful alms to the poor, and through her goodness, many were kept from perishing. From this time, Queen Berengaria and King Richard were never parted. She found it best to accompany him in all his campaigns, and we find her with him at the hour of his death. Higden, in Polychronicon, gives this testimony to the love that Berengaria bore to Richard. The king took home to him his queen Berengaria, whose society he had for a long time neglected, though she were a royal, eloquent, and beauteous lady, and for his love had ventured with him through the world. The same year the king, despairing of heirs by his consort, sent for young Arthur, Duke of Bretagne, that the boy might be educated at his court, as future king of England. His mother Constance, out of enmity to Queen Eleonora, unwisely refused this request, and she finished her folly by declaring for the king of France, then waging a fierce war against Richard. This step cost her hapless child his inheritance, and finally his life. From this time, Richard acknowledged his brother John as his heir. The remaining three years of Richard's life were spent in petty provincial wars with the king of France. In one of his treaties, the princess Alice was at last surrendered to her brother, who gave her, with a tarnished reputation, and the dowry of the county of Ponthieu, in marriage to the count of Amurl, when she had arrived at her thirty-fifth year. After the reconciliation between Richard and Berengaria, the royal revenues arising from the tin mines in Cornwall and Devon, valued at two thousand marks per annum, were confirmed to the queen for her dower. Her continental dower was the city of Begore in Aquitaine, and the whole county of Mons. It was the lively imagination of Richard, heated by the splendid fictions of Arabian romance, that hurried him to his end. A report was brought to him, that a peasant, plowing in the fields of Vidomar, lord of Chalus in Aquitaine, had struck upon a trapdoor which concealed an enchanted treasure, and going down into a cave, discovered several golden statues, with vases full of diamonds, all of which had been secured in the castle of Chalus, for the private use of the Seigneur de Vidomar. Richard, when he heard this fine tale, sent to Vidomar, demanding, as sovereign of the country, his share of the golden statues. The poor castellan declared that no such treasure had been found, nothing but a pot of Roman coins had been discovered, and those he was welcome to have. As Richard had set his mind on golden statues and vases of diamonds, and had thriven so well when he demanded the golden furniture from King Tancred, it was not probable he could lower his ideas to the reality stated by the unfortunate lord of Vidomar. Accordingly, he marched to the besieged castle of Chalus, sending word to Vidomar, either to deliver the statues, or abide the storming of the castle. To this siege, Queen Berengaria accompanied her king. 
Here Richard met his death, being pierced from the walls, by an arrow from an arbalasta, or crossbow, aimed by the hand of Bertrand de Gordon. It was the unskillfulness of the surgeon, who mangled the king's shoulder in cutting out the arrow, joined to Richard's own willfulness in neglecting the regimen of his physicians, that caused the mortification of the trifling wound, and occasioned the death of a hero who, to many faults, joined a redeeming generosity, that showed itself in its last moments. After enduring great agony from his wound, as he drew near to death, the castle of Chalouse was taken. He caused Bertrand de Gordon to be brought before him, and telling him he was dying, asked him whether he had discharged the fatal arrow with the intention of slaying him. Yes, tyrant, replied Gordon, for to you I owe the deaths of my father and my brother, and my first wish was to be revenged on you. Notwithstanding the boldness of this avowal, the dying king commanded Gordon to be set at liberty, and that it was not his fault that his detestable mercenary general, the Fleming Marcade, caused him to be put to a cruel death. Richard's death took place April 6, 1199. His queen unquestionably was with him when he died. She corroborated the testimony that he left his dominions, and two-thirds of his treasures, to his brother John. Richard appears to have borne some personal resemblance to his great-uncle, William Rufus. Like him, his hair and complexion were warm in color, and his eyes blue and fiercely sparkling. Like Rufus, his strength was prodigious, but he had the advantage of a tall majestic figure. There are some points of resemblance in character between Richard and his collateral ancestor, though Richard must be considered a more learned and elegant prince, and susceptible withal, of more frequent impulses of generosity and penance. They both seem to have excelled in the same species of wit and lively repartee. At the time of King Richard's death, Matthew Paris declares Queen Eleonora, his mother, was governing England, where, as this historian, she was exceedingly respected and beloved. Before the body of Cour de Lyon was committed to the grave, an additional load of anguish assailed the heart of his royal widow, through the calamities that befell Joanna, her friend, and Richard's favorite sister. The persecution on account of religion, that afterwards visited Joanna's gallant son, in the well-known war against the Albigenses, had already attacked his father incipiently. Owing to the secret agitations of the Catholic clergy, the barons of Toulouse were in arms against the gallant Raymond. Queen Joanna, though in a state little consistent with such exertions, flew to arms for the relief of her adored lord. We translate the following mournful passage from Guillaume de Puy-Laurens. Queen Joanna was a woman of great courage, and was highly sensitive to the injuries of her husband. She laid siege to the castle of Cassar, but, owing to the treachery of her attendants, her camp was fired. She escaped with difficulty from the burning tents, much scorched and hurt. Unsubdued by this accident, she hastened to lay her wrongs before her beloved brother, King Richard. She found he had just expired as she arrived. The pains of premature childbirth seized her as she heard the dire intelligence and she sank under the double affliction of mental and corporeal agony. With her last breath, she begged to be laid near her brother Richard. To Berengaria the request was made, and the cold remains of royal brother and sister, the dearest objects of the sorrowing queen's affections, were laid, by her pious care, side by side, 
in the stately abbey of Fonteraude. The heart of Richard was bequeathed by him to be buried in the cathedral of Rouen, where it has lately been exhumed, in 1842. When the case was unclosed, the lion heart was found entire, but withered to the consistency of a faded leaf. The deaths of Richard and Joanna were immediately succeeded by that of Berengaria's only sister, Blanche. This princess had been given in marriage by Cour de Lyon to his nephew and friend, the troubadour prince, the Bell of Champagne. The princess Blanche died the day after the birth of a son, who afterwards was the heir both of Sancho and Berengaria, and finally king of Navarre. Thus, in the course of a few short weeks, was the Queen of England bereft of all that was near and dear to her. The world had become a desert to Berengaria before she left it for a life of conventual seclusion. Queen Berengaria fixed her residence at Mons, in the Orlinois, where she held a great part of her foreign dower. Here she founded the noble abbey of Leospon. Once Queen Berengaria left her widowed retirement, when she met her brother-in-law, King John, and his fair young bride at Chinon, her husband's treasured city. Here she compounded with the English monarch, for the dower she held in England, for two thousand marks per annum, to be paid half-yearly. After being entertained with royal magnificence, and receiving every mark of respect from the English court, the royal widow bade farewell to public splendor, and retired to conventual seclusion, and the practice of constant charity. But no sooner was John fixed firmly on the English throne, than he began to neglect the payment of the dower for which his sister-in-law had compounded. And, in 1206, there appears in the Fodera, a passport for the Queen Dowager to come to England, for the purpose of conferring with King John, but there exists no authority whereby we can prove that she arrived in this country. The records of 1209 present a most elaborate epistle from Pope Innocent, setting forth the wrongs and wants of his dear daughter in Christ, Berengaria, who, he says, had appealed to him, with floods of tears streaming down her cheeks, and with audible cries, which we trust were flowers of rhetoric of the Pope's secretary. As Pope Innocent threatens John with an interdict, it is pretty certain that the wrongs of Berengaria formed a clause in the subsequent excommunication of the felon king. In 1214, when the excommunication was taken off, there exists a letter from John to his dear sister, the illustrious Berengaria, praying that the Pope's nuncio might arbitrate what was due to her. The next year brings a piteous letter from John, praying that his dearly beloved sister will excuse his delay of payment, seeing that the greatness of his adversity by reason of the wickedness of his magnates and barons, who had invited Prince Louis of France to spoil her estates. But when, says King John, these clouds that have overcast our serenity shall disperse, and our kingdom be full of joyful tranquility, then the pecuniary debt owed to our dear sister shall be paid joyfully and thankfully. This precious epistle was penned July 8th, 1216, by John, but he died the succeeding October, and Berengaria's debt was added to the vast sum of his other trespasses, for joyful tranquility never came for him, nor, of course, her time of payment. In the reign of Henry the Third, Berengaria had again to require the Pope's assistance for the payment of her annuity. Her arrears at that time amounted to four thousand forty pounds sterling, but the Templars became guarantees and agents for her payment, 
and from that time the pecuniary troubles of Berengaria ceased to form a feature in our national records. The date of Berengaria's death has generally been fixed about the year 1230, but that was only the year of the completion of her Abbey of Espain, and of her final retirement from the world, as from that time she took up her abode within its walls, and finished there her blameless life, at an advanced age, some years afterwards. Berengaria was interred in her own stately abbey. The following most interesting particulars of her monument, we transcribe from the noble work of the late Mr. Stothard, edited by his accomplished widow, Mrs. Bray. When Mr. Stothard visited the abbey of Lisbane, near Mons, in the search of the effigy of Berengaria, he found the church converted into a barn, and the object of his inquiry in a mutilated state, concealed under the quantity of wheat. It was in excellent preservation, with the exception of the left arm. By the effigy were laying the bones of the queen, the silent witnesses of the sacrilegious demolition of the tomb. After some search, a portion of the arm belonging to the statue was recovered. Three men who had assisted in the work of destruction stated, that the monument with the figure upon it stood in the center of the aisle, at the east end of the church, that there was no coffin within it, but a small square box, containing bones, pieces of linen, some stuff embroidered with gold, and a slate, on which was found an inscription. The slate was found in possession of a canon of the Church of St. Julien, at Mons. Upon it was engraven an inscription, of which the following is a translation. The tomb of the most serene Berengaria, Queen of England, the noble founder of this monastery, was restored and removed to this more sacred place. In it were deposited the bones which were found in the ancient sepulchre, on the 27th of May, in the year of our Lord, 1672. The sides of the tomb are ornamented with deep quadrifoils. The effigy which was upon it is in high relief. It represents the queen with her hair unconfined, but partly concealed by a coverchief, over which is placed an elegant crown. Her mantle is fastened by a narrow band crossing her breast. A large female, or brooch, richly set with stones, confines her tunic at the neck. To an ornamental girdle, which encircles her waist, is attached a small ammoniere or purse. This greatly resembles a modern reticule, with a chain and clasped top. The queen holds in her hand a box, singular from its circumstance of having embossed on the cover a second representation of herself, as lying on a bier, with waxen torches burning in candlesticks on either side of her. From early youth to her grave, Berengaria manifested devoted love for Richard, uncomplaining when deserted by him, forgiving him when he returned, and faithful to his memory unto death. The royal Berengaria, Queen of England, though never in England, little deserves to be forgotten, by any admirer of feminine and conjugal virtue. End of section 3thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet remember we also have a website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes thank you for listening and have a great day